Hello, and welcome to Heart, Soul, and Data, the podcast where we explore the human side of analytics to amplify the impact of nonprofits and social enterprises. With me, your host, Alexandra Mannering. Thank you so much for joining me today, Deborah. Do you mind introducing yourself? Not at all, and thanks for having me. My name is Deborah Peel. I have been a crime analyst for many, many, many years now. <laughs> and so what I've absorbed and what I've learned is strictly from doing it for so long. I live in central Massachusetts, which is where I was born and where I've always had a home. But I've worked at very, very small agencies. I've worked at local and state agencies. I've dabbled in the federal government and I've worked at NYPD as a senior crime analyst. So I've done the whole spectrum of police agencies and roles and and functions. And I've been really, you know, blessed with that opportunity. I've always been been a crime analyst and, and invested myself in crime analysis and crime data and the processing of that data and the, the capacity of utilizing that data. The data controls my, my life. I like it. And I always love finding a fellow data lover to be able to, to interact with. So thank you so much for joining me today. And I am really excited to bring you on, not just because I personally am very interested in crime data and how we use it to drive policy and make decisions, but also because I think many of us, especially in mission-driven places, are working with human-based data, right? Data about actions that people take, behaviors that people have. And when I first reached out to you, I talked about comparing that to NASA data or you know, data that is very clean, very precise, very repeatable. And then you have this whole human mess on the other side that we get to look at. And so I was curious if we could start with exploring what do we need to think about when we start getting into data that's on human behavior? (sighs) And this could be the whole discussion. Yes, (laughs) because a human mess is really a a good way to describe it. I don't spend a lot of time. Well, maybe that's not true. I mean, I, I do think about other data types and data sources, but really in the context of wondering if all the same issues are the same across other professions because policing data, crime data, that whole realm is truly such a mess. I find myself using just the same phrase all along to discuss things with people where I just say, well, you know, and of course the data was a mess because it so often is, and it's such a surprise to get data that is immediately you know, workable. And I think there's so many reasons for that. There is so many hands in the mix. And I do try to stress to analysts, especially when you're working in larger agencies uh, where the volume is, is so large and the, the urgency is, is often so great, that police officers, you know, first responsibility is not data collection. You know, a young NYPD cop has so much to think about on every call they're sent out on. They just don't know if what they find is going to be what's been described to them. They, they don't know if people will speak English. They don't know how many people will be there. They don't know if people will be, you know, injured and bleeding and they need to call the ambulance or... People are going to have weapons or, uh, you know, 
so much. And then they have to think about so much in terms of the reporting, so many different reports based on, on what they find there and whether or not they make an arrest and what the next steps are and, and how they document it. And at least for, for NYPD cops, so much is, is asked of them in those reports. They're much lengthier than you know, average police reports, which are already long. And they typically don't know any different because, you know, it's what they've always been been exposed to. But it's what allows the agency to do so much analysis. And, and there's real repercussions if they forget something along the way. And all of that is happening at a very fast pace. And so there's no getting around that they then do have to do the reports. And so many, you know, average agencies simply don't do well with, with all the technology that's involved. And it's, it's no longer that a cop just comes back and sits down on a desktop computer and bangs out a report. It's done mobily or, you know, maybe best circumstances, at least on a, a real laptop that they have in the car or wherever they're working. But there's, you know, a lot of mobile transactions going on. There's sometimes getting information off of phones. You would try the whole, you know, report back on the phone. That, that never worked too well. There's too much scrolling involved and things. But there's lots of complicated elements to all of that technology. Technology can't ever make the process really easy. These are just long reports. But the technology should make it as easy as possible for them to do a decent report. And, but that's only if an agency is equipped to use that technology to its capacity. And, you know, often they're just not from a technical perspective, but I think also that realm is sometimes exploited by vendors where they recognize that they may be dealing with people who are not so tech savvy. And so, you know, it all gets off to a rough start to begin with, I, I think. And I know that policing isn't, isn't alone in that. Everywhere you go, somebody's complaining about the systems they have to use. But I think when you add the, the emergency element to it all and the changing dynamics, you know, that just adds to it. So you know, NYPD does have very good technology and, and it's reflected in what they're, they're able to do, but they're certainly not average. On the average level, then things start to decline. Yeah, I hear a lot of the same frustrations and same challenges in the healthcare space as well, which is where mm-hmm. I, you know, I've spent a lot of my data time, you know, and, and you have that same thing that the doctor's primary job is not to generate data, although right. it ends up for them, they don't get paid if they don't do it. So that adds like an extra layer of, of yep. forcefulness to get it done. But you have oftentimes people who are trying to do the, the real thing. And that's what they're trained to do. Save this person, stop the bleeding, right. do the surgery, whatever it is. And then there's this whole reporting element that then is trying to translate this messy human thing that happened into some kind of standard code. And like you said, there's right. all the different people participating in that, right? So trying to get any kind of data standard is so difficult because you have so many different yes. agencies, different officers, different state requirements, all of that that you're trying to line up. You know, and then like you said, you need the data for the agency, but the reporting process is already so burdensome that to try to yes. add an element that you were missing before because it's going to help you see this thing could be so 
so difficult for, for that person. And then even like just the technology, like you said, it's how you even capture that data. Because again, in, in all of these places where we're working with people, we're out doing the thing with the people. (laughs) And so either you wait until you get back to some setting where you can do it. And then you might have lost information or forgotten it. Like you said, that that you, you don't have it, or you're trying to mobily input right. it. And I've heard, you know, traveling nurse agencies have the same issue or yes. health, health, any health and human services agency that's, that's in the community will have that same challenge. Yeah. I think it's even now in 2022, there's still challenges to that whole mobile mm-hmm. process for anybody who's on the road and still has to report back in a, in a you know, data sort of format. The technology can be glitchy and, and there's just never enough time to do decent reports for, for a cop to do a decent, you know, comprehensive report. And I think the emphasis has, has always been on just, you know, do it faster and faster and faster and just check the boxes and, and move on. But even from the first moment, ultimately, not all of that, but a lot of that ends up in court. And uh, you know, I, I do think it's, it really is a public safety issue. Mm-hmm. You know, so many cases do get let out or dismissed or, or whatever. And it often starts with, you know, the quality of that report. And with 18,000 police departments, standards are spread out the entire length of the spectrum. And, and some have never adopted that as quality police work and others have. So it's, it's a challenge in so many different ways. And that's just the collection. You know, we right. haven't even talked about what happens, you know, after it's collected. I know, I know. It's so true. And and I realize there's an, a really interesting conflict where I think the officers themselves see their job as being an officer, meaning going out, yes. answering calls, doing that. And they see the report writing as taking away from what yes, they could yes. be doing. So any hour that they spend writing a report, well, I could be on a call, I could be doing a patrol. Whereas to your right. point, if those things aren't done right, all the work that they put into the patrol or into their activity right. could, could end for not because it's not then present to actually do the court and justice side yes. properly. And that can be sometimes a difficult thing for frontline workers to understand why their data is so important. And yes. then on the other side, the people using it don't understand why the frontline people don't get how important the data are. Right. And all ends, you know, impact that, yeah. that process because you do need the frontline officers to do their part and enter the data adequately and, and which really means accurately so that it can then be turned into some kind of product that will benefit them. Mm-hmm. And so if they, you know, aren't made to do their part, then that can't happen at the other end. I, I think, you know, more and more agencies, as much as the data is so often just a mess, there, there has been progress. And I know NYPD does try to work, you know, hard at that to, to make the frontline officers recognize, you know, what is a, what is the purpose of all of this and, and how is it used? And, and I think that, that that can happen in agencies of any size. But first, it has to be, you know, recognized that, that that's a need. And then it takes work and time and, and effort. But you know, NYPD, for example, is really obsessed with patterns. And the only way to identify patterns is through quality data. 
But I think for the most part, officers everywhere are mission-driven individuals, you know? And so if, if you can send them on a defined mission and they achieve some level of success, whatever that is, then they will do more of that when they see the value of it. But it's definitely a whole process. And so I, I think it, at least to a great degree, they are able to do that and even with their volume. So it's not something that only they could do. Any agency could, could start to do that and identify patterns sooner rather than later. And I think then that leads to a really functioning police department and, and better public safety. But there's not a lot of training. There's not a lot of resources you know, out there to prepare mid-level managers and commanders to work with that. It's better, I think, than it, than it was, but it's still hard. That's a huge issue that so many organizations, especially in the nonprofit mission-driven space, have where like, you have people who aren't necessarily trained as data entry or data analyst or trained in using data as a manager, and there aren't right. a ton of resources available. It's not a common thing to invest in that kind of training or set aside time for that training. So that, that's a really good point. So let's get into then finding the patterns, right? We're really interested in being able to use this data. I want to talk about some of the shortcomings with police data specifically, because I think it will echo to a lot of other data sources. So you finally collected all of the data, the reports, the the arrest records, all of that. Yep. What are some things that are going to trip people up right away when they try to use that to, to find patterns well, or interpret it? It's hard to even know where, where to start. We're, we're in a, you know, an interesting time right now in crime data specifically. There's a, a new kind of accounting process mandated by law now that agencies have to jump on board what's called the National Incident-Based Reporting System, NIBRS it's, it's called, and that's managed by the FBI. And so reporting in general is voluntary still across this country. There are police agencies who simply, you know, don't report. But if you are going to report, which is the vast majority, you're supposed to have by January 2021 have made that transition to NIBRS. So it, it involves upgrades in technology and, and all of that sort of stuff. But it's a new way of, of counting. So I am a, a big fan of NIBRS reports because they ask a lot more detailed questions than older reporting did. You, you need to document the relationships between victim and offender. You need to document the premise type. So was it a you know, single family residential home or was it an apartment building or a parking garage or a street or a convenience store or a motel? They have these different you know, codes. And that's just the beginning. There's so many. So all of that is very valuable to an analyst to be able to, to look at patterns, but it's at least initially much more onerous on an agency and on individual officers to just become familiar with all the validation rules, the, the coding. You know, in the big picture, it's, it's not that complicated, but it's kind of complicated. And it, it takes a little bit of time and a little bit of training. And none of this is as hard as any of that. So, you know, 
they can do it. They're just kicking and screaming usually. But the whole process does rely on accurate crime classification. So, you know, the typical example is when people will often say, I've been robbed. We see it on TV all the time. That's, that's pretty much the only thing that happens to victims short of murder is that they're robbed, they're robbed. They're, well, usually people who claim they've been robbed are victims of theft of one kind or another. How those are classified then kind of dictates the other fields in the report. And some agencies pay attention to that and some, some do not. And it's pretty clear right off the bat because it would be unusual for a jurisdiction to have you know, more burglaries than thefts, for example, or more you know, aggravated assaults than robberies, for example. You know, there's overlaps and those classifications just have to have to be correct to have any start. And from a supervisor advisor's perspective, like a sergeant, you know, how that officer chooses to classify the crime should then dictate how he or she then, then go forward with their response. And so, you know, supervisors use the reports to see, you know, how did the officer respond? And in the end, what was this? And then detectives and, and other people who are following up then also build off of that information. So it's important that it's correct. But, you know, people in general can learn pretty quickly what sorts of codes make the report longer and more complicated and what codes let you skip by a lot of those rules. So there's, there's always that taking place, you know, how to, to be able to identify patterns. And so the more detail you add, the, the more you can, can do that. Uh, because we know from crime theory that crime happens in patterns. Most often, even if the, the police are running to an individual for the first time, it's unlikely that that's their first offense. You know, they've probably done this before and just weren't caught. And if the offender is not caught, we know they're likely to do it again. And so identification of all those factors really helps to narrow down who do we know for offenders who do this sort of thing in just this sort of way? And it helps, you know, greater society. That's what allows for advances in security. So there's lots of elements to it. But as you try to become more sophisticated with that, then that cascades to everything else. Then your technology has to be better. Then the training has to, has to be better. So it, it can get to be kind of a passive aggressive thing. You know, where agencies say, sure, we'd like to be able to do this better, but I only have so many officers. I only have so yeah. much technology available. Our, our current system you know, doesn't do these things, mm -hmm. all those sorts of things. Um, and then they often just don't know, don't know how, don't know what to ask for, don't know what's available. Disappointing. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, you talk a lot about really critical human sides of the data right, aligning how decisions are made, how assessments are made to being driven by data rather than personality or preference. This idea of the more detail you ask for, the more onerous the process, but then potentially if it's aligned with how the decisions are made, that that becomes a necessary thing. And there yes. is a trade-off. There's a trade-off between doing your job and entering the data. And how do you balance and decide where those investments go, you know, are, are hard issues. And there's consequences to not making the investments 
in the data, both, like you said, at a local level within a precinct, within a single sergeant's team, all the right. way up to the, like nationally, how we make policy. But there are also issues with standards, not just sort of in this voluntary side where like, do I pick the easier classification because I don't have to do the report or, you know, do I not understand it? I've not been trained. And so I'm going to misclassify it from out of, you know, an ignorance or mistake. But you were also talking about you have city law, county law, state law and federal law that are not necessarily built to be like these nice little Russian nesting dolls. Right. You talked about that. But sometimes there are certain classifications of crime in a given state that doesn't necessarily nicely roll up to the federal or may roll up differently based on how the state classifies crime. So can you talk a little bit about that challenge? Sure. So to, to simplify it a lot for everyone, everywhere, the FBI does define crime definitions for us in whatever your local statutes might be or charges you put upon someone the definition of the crime remains the same. And across the entire country, everybody reports back to the FBI. But differences among states and geographic regions do make it more or less complicated. You know, a a simple example is that in Massachusetts, for example, and and many other places, um, New York too, theft from a motor vehicle or a car break, as people will call it, are larcenies. It's theft. It's just theft. But many states classify theft from a motor vehicle as burglary because there is that, you know, forced entry into someone's space. The context around that is that you don't have the same expectation of safety and security in a vehicle as you would have in your home or office or something. But it it creates a lot of complications in, in the reporting. And so in many agencies, they are using charge classifications as how they classify their crime. Usually along the way somewhere, there is some records person that kind of fixes that. So it does get reported to the FBI with some level of accuracy. But on the the agency side of things, it can make things very complicated. And um, how the police respond to those types of crimes are very different. And so when those state level charges and statutes and things kind of get into the mix, it makes the data less actionable that way. So there's a few steps to it, but that much better helps you to plan deployment. It helps you identify patterns. It really helps you to do good policing. Mm -hmm. And yet, across the country, there remain fewer agencies that have analysts than do. And we are in a a kind of a time right now where agencies everywhere are recognizing that they probably should have an analyst, but they hire an entry-level person where that person only has so much experience about what they could or should do. And the agency isn't quite sure what they want. And so we're going through, you know, a a lot of that. I, I do think it's slowly getting better, but but there's a lot of complications to yeah. it. Well, um, and, and to add on to that complication as well, you know, we're talking about crime data to capture the crimes that happen, but it's not actually possible to truly no. right, like capture every crime that happens and what actually happened. We're relying on right. a victim to tell us a story, which may or may not be fully complete yeah. or accurate. 
you're relying on human, like the officer interpretation of what happened. And then you're also having to deal with like what even got reported, how it got reported. If a suspect was captured, what was that suspect ultimately tried for and then may or may not have been convicted for. So there's a lot of layers onto this as well in terms of what do we actually have data on and how similar is that to the the reality on the other side? So what kind of gaps do you see and and how does that impact how we use crime data knowing that it's not necessarily a perfect reflection of reality? So for all my complaints about, about messy data, I do think that the, the general public would be surprised about how thoughtful real policing professionals are about these things. Mm-hmm. Not just at the largest agencies, although you, they just have, have more resources, but you know, smaller, smaller agencies too, where from the top, on down, police commanders and, and supervisors are are really, you know, knowledgeable about what's going on out there. They're thoughtful about crime. They're aware of the environmental factors that contribute to crime. I think generally, at the highest levels of of sworn police professionalism, you would really find people who who lean towards the left to a greater degree than people would be surprised because they recognize the environmental factors that contribute to crime. They they recognize that not everyone, you know, lives the same life as everyone else. Not everyone has the same opportunities. There's reasons that, especially with violent crime, that violent crime hotspots are where they are and they continue to, to kind of smolder where they are. The answers aren't easy, but they recognize the issues and they really try to think about, you know, how how do we address that? And so how we go at that is is different from everyone's perspective, but most people don't disagree that it's needed. And so, you know, there is a recognition that all we can respond to is what's reported to us even as you maintain that context that you know, not all crime is, is reported. But at least as an analyst, I, you know, I can't agonize over it too much because there is so much reported to us that I think, well, perhaps we're not helping you know, every, every individual with their individual issues. We certainly can look at how various types of crimes impact individuals, whether it's Efforts that fraud with the elderly or, you know, what crimes result from drugs and drug addiction to just, you know, general property crimes. And, you know, what do we do about these things? I just often think that policing is such a unique environment internally, you know, that most people don't just aren't aware of how it runs. And then to try to fit training into all of that, it's it's complicated. So to get back to the discussion, you know, at at hand, I think that the biggest challenge with data, I think, eh, two things, I guess, what we've talked about, the processing of the data itself. And then, you know, agencies everywhere are making real, real efforts to increase that community engagement and really to encourage reporting. 
even though as you increase that reporting, it's going to increase your crime numbers. But mm. everybody everywhere is trying to work on that, trying to, I guess, you know, increase engagement is just the way to put it, trying to, to relate to communities better, trying to um, interact with them on, on their turf and their, their environments. NYPD has, has done tremendous things to, to try to improve that and you know, agencies everywhere. And it's not necessarily new. I mean, they were, they were trying to do that, but I think now they're, they're taking it more seriously. You know, in the past, you would just open the doors and have coffee and bagels and hope the community comes down to, to get a tour of the station or something. And that, that's great. It's, you know, nice and everything, but you get the same people over and over again and not necessarily the people that, you know, you really need to be engaging with. So there's lots of science behind it now and they really try to, to get out there and, and do that. And that runs the gamut of, of ways in which to try to address that better. And then within that, I, I think, you know, what's really important is for agencies to then, you know, take that analysis that comes out of the data and, you know, have real meetings around it, discussions around it. And, you know, sadly, not, not many agencies do that in a very structured way. Every agency has some kind of, you know, weekly staff meeting or something, command staff meeting or whatever they might call it. But that often gets bogged down in budgets and sick time and overtime and administrative issues. And I think if you have, you know, more than the sheriff and, and Barney Fife, then you have important things to talk about, you know, and you need to get together in a setting that is dedicated specifically to discussing crime and, and what's happening out there and what's changing and what do we need to respond to you know, where are we having an impact and where are we not and god forbid are we you causing any unintended harm in what we're doing what are we doing you know because nypd calls that comstat and that's where comstat originated and it's gone on uninterrupted for almost 30 years now and you have other agencies who have not even been you know, able to get that started. And then that, that creates an environment in the agency where, you know, we are going to be analysis driven, not just going out there based on our own internal gut instincts or something. We're going to you know, really look at that. And I, I do think that if it's getting better, that evaluation is being taken more seriously and agencies are recognizing the need to know what's going on. And I don't think police are alone in that sense of we always do what we've always done just because we've always done it. That's a big, you know, issue. <laughs> but I'm sure that we're not alone in that. I just think it is slowly getting better where they're realizing that we have to evaluate our own operations to see if, if it's going the way that the plan called for. Sometimes the plan never, never happens as it was intended because it's raining or there's too many people out on that shift or they don't like the, the captain that gave the orders or, you know, all kinds of reasons things don't go. And it's better to know that sooner rather than later. 
Yeah. So you can just tweak it. Sometimes it's still a good plan, just needs a little adjustment. Right. And, you know, other things take a little more time. And then if you see that there is some success going on, then you want to do more of that. Yeah. And so I always try to sell analysis that way. You know, my, my goal is to give actionable information to the street level officers so that with whatever I produce and however it gets to them, when they pull out of the lot, they might go left instead of right, or they're thinking I'm going to keep my eyes open for X or I'm aware of this pattern, you know, so that they're, they're going to do things, you know, maybe a little differently. They have maybe have some wanted fires for, you know, known offenders, something actionable, not, not just the statistics and that they're going to where they go with as much information as possible for their safety, as well as anyone else's. And we do have the technology today to, to do an awful lot of that. But, you know, it, it starts with that data. And the data doesn't have to be perfect, too. You know, there's the crime analysis profession is still growing and advancing. But in many places, it's also very much a support position. So, you know, if the, the chief is happy with what he or she gets, then, you know, the analyst is content in, in just doing that. Yeah. And then other, other analysts right off the bat are anxious to try to do everything they can with what they have. A lot of dirty data issues can be addressed. Excel is really powerful for fixing data. You know, there's lots of ways to get around things, but it definitely has to be collaborative and it has to. Well, I think your idea of this, you know, there has to be a space of, of, of meeting and discussing whether it's agency to community or whether it's intra-agency, right? Those, those team meetings that it's not just about, okay, who's on the shift, but it's, what did we see yesterday? What actually happened? We had planned on this, or we've been trying to target this. Are we seeing more of it, less of it? Is our response happening the right way? And that asking those questions, right? has to rely on being able to have the data to answer them, but creating the social space and the commitment to the time and discussion about it is critical to actually make that data impact the decisions. And I think there's an interesting thing here too, where I think police in particular, but this is broader to all organizations, they're afraid of data coming in because it's going to be used as a gotcha. Yes. You know, that it's going to be, you did your job wrong, or I'm going to use this data to tell you how to do your job better, even though I've never done your job. And so, you know, I get it from your side very much this, no, 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 this will help you do your job better. Cause I have that discussion every day, all day of like, no, we want the data so you can do your job better, but people hear it as you're going to micromanage me and tell me I'm bad. Yes. You have any recommendations on like how we can, I don't know, address that bridge. (laughs) So that that's one of the huge challenges. So ComStat, that's, it's a very broadly used term for holding a sort of crime-focused meeting and looking at um, trends and patterns and what are we seeing and what's going on and what are we going to do about it. It's a very, very formal process uh, at NYPD and some of the other large agencies. It originated at NYPD about 30 years ago, and it's, you know, broadly spread around the, the world, but, you know, everybody does it differently. And 
it's supposed to have an accountability element. So um, and it very, you know, strongly does uh, at NYPD. And then, you know, that gets filtered down. So a common phrase, you know, I'll, I'll hear all the time is that, oh, you know, we do CompSat, not the way NYPD does it, but, you know, we do our own version, right. which usually means, you know, somewhat kinder and, and gentler. But, you know, within that context, it's a rank structured environment. And, you know, I think if there's that, you know, accountability piece in place, it doesn't have to be an aggressive process. It just has to be a standard and consistent process. And when people, you know, recognize that, then the system kind of works. And so they realize they can't just you know, scratch in a bunch of answers on the report, they've got to, you know, it has to meet a standard and uh, be accurate, or it's going to impact what everybody else does along the way. And then you have to structure things accordingly. Data has to be timely. You know, you can't let people take days or even weeks to complete their report, which happens still in a lot of places. And so in that way, it flows as all kinds of checks and balances where the data itself is audited to make sure that people are doing things, classifying things properly and and doing those things properly. And so only if that structure is in place, you are the people under it going to respond accordingly. And we all have to do that in life. You know, there's certain things we got to do that are at a, uh, that are up to a certain standard and we've all got to, you know, pay our taxes and, do different functions for society to, to get by. And it's really, it's part of the job. Mm-hmm. It really is part of the job. And I think that has to be the attitude of it. Mm-hmm. Nobody loves it, but it's simply what, what has to be done. Mm-hmm. And if that kind of attitude is permeated throughout the agency, you know, then it, then it flows along. At the same time, once you start really analyzing what you have going on, there's going to be good news and bad news with that. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there's that hesitancy, especially just in, you know, average size agencies, if things are going along like they always have, you know, there's some reluctance to, to ask for that bad news. It's usually when the community or, or local government or someone starts to say, what exactly is, is going on here? And then typically they'll bring in someone new to address those problems. It's, it can be very, very difficult culturally and, and in every other way for a sitting chief or commander to make those kinds of changes. It's difficult on so many levels, you know, politically and resource-wise and in every different way to, to do that. But I think we're, we're getting there. Training is getting better. The use of technology is getting better. I, I, I think, I do think it's getting better. I, I think your point of that it needs to become part of the job. That's so true for so many different things that it just needs to become an accepted part that you will be held accountable, that there is an accountability. Yeah. I think anything in public service, policing, especially because the stakes are so high, but medicine, doctors, yes. All of that, it, like it's the same thing that there needs to be a transparent accountability and we just expect that that's part of the job. And then the generation of the data that can help with that accountability also just becomes part of the job. 
So I could talk to you for hours. So yes, I <laughs> but unfortunately, too. I don't have hours <laughs> to talk to you. And I know you've got many other things that you need to do as well. So I want to be respectful of your time. You've already spent Thank an you. hour with me. So I appreciate this so much. Thank you so, I did too. so much. It was for really fun. All right. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I'll take a look at this and yeah, okay. I may reach out to you again and I enjoy the conversation too. So maybe too, I'll, come up with too. Other co- I'll come up with other questions I can ask you. I'm glad this came about. So we thank keep you. In touch. Thank you so much, Deborah. I really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Take care. You have been listening to Heart, Soul, and Data. This podcast is brought to you by Moroccanus an analytics education, consulting, and data services company devoted to helping nonprofits and social enterprises amplify their impacts and thrive through data. You can learn more at marakanos.com, M-E-R-A-K-I-N-O-S.com.